One of the greatest fears of a mother is that everybody's going on with life and you just hope that your daughter will not be forgotten. It's burned right into your soul and in, into your heart and your mind. I'm journalist Angela Kennecke. I lost my oldest child, Emily, to fentanyl poisoning in 2018. Emily was just 21. Her death was preceded by years of struggle, the struggle of addiction so many families face today. We were just three days away from holding an intervention when she died. We couldn't save her. There's a term called amelioration of grief, and it means that grief takes time, and it will get better only if you put work into it. In this podcast, I'm grieving out loud with other parents who've lost children and with those currently struggling with the monster of addiction. I didn't want to go into withdrawal. It was like one of the biggest fears of my life at the time. You were terrified of withdrawal? Terrified. Why? It is the worst pain, um, illness, the worst feeling that I could ever imagine having. I'm also learning from experts in the field on how we can and must do better to treat this disease of the brain. We treat the addiction and the effect of the addiction, but we're not looking at the pain. The root. The root cause. Today I'm joined by Jessica Halsey. Jessica is a powerhouse of a woman. She has done amazing things. She began working in the prevention field at the age of 15. She formed the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C., of which I have volunteered for and been lucky enough to be a part. And Jessica is joining me today to tell me about her story, why she got involved in this field, and some of the really new and innovative things that she's doing, and along with everybody else at the Addiction Policy Forum. So, Jessica, you and I have known each other for a couple years now. We met under unfortunate circumstances after the death of my daughter, but I'm so glad to know you. Oh, well, thank you for having me today. It's been so wonderful working with you over the years, and the work you do is an inspiration. Oh, thank you. Let's talk just briefly before we get into how and why you formed the Addiction Policy Forum. You brought into the fold so many parents who've lost children to overdose. I first met you because I was invited by the Addiction Policy Forum to be a part of it, to come to a meeting in Washington, D.C., to meet other parents like me who've lost children to overdose. Why was that so important to you to involve grieving parents like me? You know, from the time I started doing this work, I felt like too often they left out the families and patients that are affected by this disease. And if they did include us, it was like one, a one-off, a token, one seat at a table. And I, I really wanted to change that. Um, I lost both my parents to addiction, um, and so many of um, my now friends and my network um, have lost children, um, which is sort of the worst and such a, a kind of unimaginable grief and sense of loss. And to have those voices at the table with us, I think, gives us a better idea of what we should, we should be focusing on where to prioritize our resources and how to help other families who are in sort of the same space and not knowing where to go. So it's been sort of one of the most important things for me to do as I started this work. I know you've been asked to tell your personal story time and time again. And the first time I ever heard it, I was just blown away by what you'd been through and what a young age all this happened to you when you started really becoming an advocate. 
can you share with us what happened with your parents? Uh, you know, so like so many, my parents came from homes that struggled with alcohol use disorder, with alcoholism. Um, and they unfortunately sort of repeated that sort of that we have intergenerational substance use disorder that is so much more common than we talk about. Um, and it quickly escalated for, for both of my parents to heroin. Um, my mom went to prison. My dad was in and out of jail. My sister and I were put in foster care and then ultimately placed with our maternal grandmother. Um, our parents were too ill to, to really take care of us. Um, and it was really my grandma who helped sort of um, channel all of the sort of confusion and, and frustration and, um, and, and wanting to do something about this. Um, I think it was in kindergarten when we had our first show and tell, and I was like ready to go in and tell people about why you shouldn't shoot heroin. Um, um, <sighs> luckily, M Mrs. Dean, my kindergarten teacher and my grandma kind of helped me edit that script a little bit. Um, so I talked uh, to all of my peers about um, medications and you shouldn't take medicines that aren't prescribed for you and that there are good medicines and bad medicines. And I think I've sort of been doing this work in one shape or form ever since then. Kindergarten. I mean, to have to know those things. But I think now in this day and age, we children probably do need to know these things at a younger and younger age. I really believe we need to start education as soon as possible. I have with my kids. I mean, it, it has to be age appropriate, but the earlier, the better to start talking about your expectations as a parent and to lay out what those are and the consequences uh, and to really start, start the dialogue at home. So at a very young age, the age of 15, you were asked to start telling your story to big groups of people, right? Yeah, it was um, it sort of snowballed from the first time. I, um, I, w I volunteered to be a part of a anti-drug coalition in Southern California where I grew up. And um, it was, I think, one of the sheriff's deputies who was involved in the program. He drove me home from one of our student meetings because it was like a student leadership um, uh, organization. And he drove me home one day after one of our meetings. He's like, so why are you involved in a drug prevention group? We wrote articles for a little newsletter that went out to all the high schools in our county. And I was like, well, my parents went to prison and jail because of heroin. And I went to foster care and I live with my grandma and I want to help other kids so they don't end up in sort of the same space. And from there, I got a call sort of a day later where he asked, um, would you mind giving your talk and telling your story tomorrow morning at this big event with our sheriff of our county? Um, and I did. And uh, it sort of grew from there. And ultimately, the disease of addiction claimed the lives of both of your parents. It did. I, I lost my dad when he was only 48 years old and um, my mom when she just turned 50. What do you think it was? I mean, you mentioned your grandmother's influence, but so many you talked about the intergenerational use or uh, substance use disorder and how it runs in families. And we know there's a genetic component to it. Right. But what made you different? What made you not go down that same path that your parents did? So the number one thing is that I delayed the onset of my first use, meaning when I have a, I'm going to assume with having multiple generations ahead of me that struggle with addiction, that I have a genetic predisposition. And, and most individuals who have parents and grandmothers and grandfathers who have should really make that assumption. Um, and the longer you delay introducing your brain to um, any substance, so um, smoking, drinking, um, doing any drugs, 
is really important. So I didn't have a drink till I turned 21. And that was a very big protective factor for me. Um, I had loving adults in my life, um, my grandparents and aunts and uncles. I was also given a big sister through a county program. Um, that county program um, also recommended mental health care, which was really important. It started at the age of eight when I came out of foster care and continued through high school. Um, and then other little things, like I had a baby sister. So um, taking care of her uh, was part of sort of my mission and sort of the healthy things I focused on. Finding my voice, talking about drug prevention or addiction in general at five or 15 was also part of my mission. I've had sort of a purpose in my life since I could start writing my alphabet. So that has been part of my story and how I've changed um, sort of the trajectory of, of what this what happens in our family with addiction. And, and I hope I've, I've changed that with my kids as well. You mentioned that delayed onset of use, and you could just kind of decided that on your own at a time when people weren't really talking about that. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and, and it hasn't really changed in this culture, I don't think yet, is the idea that, oh, kids are just going to be kids. They're going to experiment. Parents are going to either sort of bury their head in the sand or turn a blind eye or laugh about it. But with my own daughter, you know, she started experimenting at 14, and I was trying desperately to stop it, and I couldn't. And I didn't seem to have a lot of support, you know, to really help me do that. I didn't know where to turn. Um, selling that idea of that, you first of all, with fentanyl out there, we all know, and who all of us who have been, you know, actively involved in this, in talking about this issue, it, there's no safe, there's no safe drug you can do, there's, you know, or anything like that. But even with that, it seems like there's still this idea that it's a rite of passage. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we can change that. And I think if you have the opportunity to share just a little bit of what we know now, and if we can figure out how to transmit that to parents and other folks that work with teenagers, you know, the, the, the adolescent brain is this amazing supercomputer. It, it can learn a language, uh, an instrument. It can learn calculus and math so much faster and easier than your brain and my brain. And if you do these brain scans, and they have these, it's so amazing. Um, if you see the 14-year-old brain, or I have a 15 and a 16-year-old at home, there's these red and orange and yellow spots that come up on the brain scan of all this plasticity and, and super growth that's happening. And then when you brain scan you and I, it's sort of just all blue. There's just there's not as much growth happening because girl brains grow up at around 22, and boy brains are grown and mature at 25. Um, and so when you introduce substances during that sort of super growth uh, phase, you can do more damage, right? So your chance of developing an addiction before the age of 21 or 18 to 21 is about one in four, whereas your chance of developing an addiction after the age of 25 is one in 25. So that is a very big difference because age matters. I don't think we've told parents that. I don't think we've told teachers and school administrators and all of the people who work with youth so they understand that the first time that they use a substance or that age that this begins is so critically important um, that we can culturally change that if we work together. Right. It's really a cultural thing that we're fighting. It's, it's not just any one particular person's attitude or something. It's, it's the whole culture. Yeah, it really is. And it, um, you know, we, we have safer ways and norms that we set for our children, um, such as sexual activity about age matters, and there's other certain social constructs. And when we start to apply some of that um, learning and those expectations 
to drug, alcohol, marijuana, and smoking um, use among adolescents, things will change drastically. Let's talk about the Addiction Policy Forum for a second. So you were at one point working as a lobbyist, right, in D.C., and then decided to start this just from your living room? Yeah, I, um, I started in my jammies on the weekends um, on my, my free time. Uh, I really um, was frustrated that families and patients still really weren't at the table. Um, and I also felt that I got involved. I really started on the prevention side with that first sort of, you know, speech many years ago in 1992. And I was, you know, here in 2004 and I lost, um, uh, or 2008, I lost my mom. And that was sort of another reminder of how devastating this disease is. And even if in your, you're in recovery, um, it can change your life expectancy because of all the long-term health consequences. Um, and I had been working, doing advocacy work for nonprofits on the Hill. I did a lot on criminal justice reform and improving prisoner reentry. And my mom was kind of the center of that too. When she came out of prison or when she spoke about coming out of prison, she'd always say, you know, Jessa, you just don't know how hard it is coming out. You don't, everything is so difficult. Um, and so I really was, was focused on that issue. Um, and then the, the addiction issue started coming up again, and I sort of saw this next round of opioids and heroin and now third wave with fentanyl. Um, and I was just frustrated that I felt like of all these years that this has affected me and my family that we haven't, we haven't come very far. Like things aren't all that different. We don't have more prevention. We don't have better treatment. We're not integrated into the healthcare system. Families and patients are still kind of in the shadows because of all the stigma. So I um, emptied out my own savings account and started a nonprofit and there was no staff for the, uh, for, you know, for a long while. It was just me and my jammies at the dining room table. But it's grown a lot since then. It has grown a bit. It has grown a bit. And I think, you know, I wish it wouldn't in some ways. I wish that this is a thing that could go out of business and I could go back to working on advocacy issues or need to go find a different job because the more demand for services for families and patients that we see is because this problem is getting worse, not better. And I really feel that we need to double down our efforts to sort of demand better care and have better outcomes for our folks. It's hard because we saw the numbers from 2019, you know, the overdose numbers are at new records and yet we're in the middle of a pandemic and everybody's worried about COVID, which is claiming many lives. Yeah. In many issues like this one, even though people continue to die every day, hundreds of people, hundred back up to 193 or so again a day, right? Yeah. About that. Um, even though that's still happening, it's hard because it's been over a little bit overshadowed right now during this particular time period. It has, and we've been working hard to get information out at the Addiction Policy Forum about the need to seek treatment, to shore up recovery support. Um, we did a, our first ever research report in, that came out in June, and it shows that uh, COVID you know, sort of colliding with the opioid epidemic and addiction is a perfect storm um, for uh, in seeing increases in relapses and overdoses and overdose fatalities. Um, and we, we need to make sure we're doing better and creating a safety net for those that are struggling with addiction because the isolation, the grief, the job loss, the financial strain, and just the stress. This is a, this is a really stressful year, and these are triggers for um, our folks, even those that are in long-term recovery. Um, and I think we need to be doing more. 
always be doing more, right? One of the things Addiction Policy Forum is doing, uh, you have that hotline. And I think yeah. that's fantastic because as a parent who's was on the internet in the middle of the night trying to look for answers and trying to figure out what could I do and feeling powerless, you know, as w- most of us have gone through if we're dealing with a loved one who is suffering from this disease, that's a wonderful resource to have. You man that. Um, but yeah, that's one of the first things I wanted to do. When my, my um, dad passed away, he actually had called a few months before and wanted to get into treatment. And I kind of worked in this field. I'd been doing work. I had no idea what to do. It's it sort of, it's impossible for families when they struggle with this disease. And, and it's not like other diseases where it's, you can find out information from your doctor and there's specialists and there's all this information online. We didn't even have a patient advocacy group. There was no American Cancer Society for addiction. It was, it was isolating and lonely and scary to be searching for info to help him. And, um, I did find him treatment, but he, he was he was really ill at that time and passed away just a few weeks later. Um, but that kind of sort of um, was sort of a moment for me that I never forgot. And so some of the things that I've wanted to do with the Addiction Policy Forum is to change that experience. Like what, what does it feel like when addiction hits your family? It feels awful and you feel alone and you don't know where to go and you're Googling at two o'clock in the morning and you get taken advantage of by people that want to monetize this or prey upon our families. And I want to change that. So we set up a helpline. Um, we have counselors and it's not connected to a treatment center that's gonna ask you if you're private pay or have insurance. It's, it's real help on how to navigate this. Um, and then the second step that we've done is created a whole initiative to um, put all the information that families need to have available to them and give it away for free. I'm so tired of monetizing information. They don't monetize information about cancer and Alzheimer's, but they do here. You got to go away for the weekend retreat. You got to go get this certification. Just buy my package for $899, $899. Buy my book for $90. And, you know, it, it's, I, I've had it. It's, it's awful. And so we've been working for seven months on navigating addiction and treatment, a guide for families. And we put it out there and it is 100% free. And we are going to put links to that on this podcast, so the podcast notes here too, as well, let people know how to find that as well as the hotline number. Wonderful. I think that is so true in the addiction field. Anybody can hang up a shingle, right? Anybody can call. There's very, there's very few standards, really no regulation, right? Anybody can call themselves. And, and that's where you have people preying on the most vulnerable, um, either families in crisis or the, the person who is ill themselves. Yeah. And you've really, you've one thing I think that I really admire about what addiction policy forum is doing is changing the language around addiction to reduce the stigma. And I had never even heard of that before I became a part of Addiction Policy Forum. Well, I think that um, the stigma around this disease does so much damage. It keeps people from seeking help. And it's not just sort of one part of society or culture. We see the stigma everywhere. Um, And the language we use to talk about the disease and the people who are struggling does matter. So I I wrote this, I even have a t-shirt that says it, don't call my dad the A word, right? So we're trying to get people to understand um, that this is a health condition and that um, how we engage and show empathy and use respectful language for patients and those struggling is really important. You know, as a journalist, I just did a story recently about a young man who died from this disease and it's still really saddens me, shocks me, maybe not to shock me, saddens me to see the comments on social media from people because they don't, 
I think a good majority of people still don't see it as a disease of the brain. Addiction Policy Forum has some resources out there that I use when I go speak to groups good. Good. because it explains it in a way everybody can understand how this is a disease of the brain. But how do we make more people understand that? Because I think a majority of people don't. They think it's a moral failing or a weakness, character flaw, that kind of thing. So according to the latest surveys that are out there, about half of U.S. adults still think that addiction is a character flaw and not a health condition. So we have our work cut out for us. But that is much better than where it was in 1992 when I got started. So there's progress, but we need to keep at it. And you, there, I don't think that um, we're going to have easy wins with this. I think you need to take the time and make sure you educate people um, in ways that are real and long lasting. And that builds compassion and understanding for this disease space. We have a few programs that we're testing right now that are interventions around uh, stigma. Um, we put out these videos to explain you know, the brain and addiction and how addiction hi hijacks your brain. And really, I think we need to be meet people where they are. We say that about people that need treatment, right? But for the rest of uh, Americans that need to understand addiction, we need to meet them where they are. And I think in a non-judgmental way, share what we have learned in the last 20 years about um, the impact of addiction on your brain, which changes priorities and behavior, um, which is something we need to acknowledge that there can be um, very different behaviors that come out of our, our patients when they are in active use disorder. We need to explain that. We need to explain that it can be treated um, that tissue in your brain repairs itself. Um, and I also think uh, acknowledging that there is behaviors, there's a choice in this, that um, people choose to use a substance. Um, I choose to eat French fries more than I should, right? We, and so many patients have health conditions that are related to the choices that they make and patient behavior but no one chooses to have an addiction. No one chooses to sort of forego the ability to live their lives and not have that looming over them and reorganizing the priorities in their brain. And I think if we take the time to explain that to people, um, compassion is planted in those moments. Right. Compassion instead of judgment, really. Exactly. Exactly. And we have to, I think we have to be patient with America while we get that information out there. This is hard work, right? And it's, there's no immediate rewards, maybe. Uh, what is the most rewarding thing for you and all the work that you've been doing? Yeah, every single person I get to work with that we can help in any way is, um, you know, is, is something that makes my heart warm and feel like I'm, you know, doing something that helps. I, I describe Addiction Policy Forum as a love letter I wrote for my mom or I write for my mom every day. And, you know, I sort of do this work for her in, in her memory and, you know, I don't think that there'll ever be an end date. Um, there are just too many people that are alone. And if I can help anyone with writing a guide or putting a video out or um, working with a certain um, sort of stakeholder field, um, it, you know, all of, all of it, I think, are these incremental steps so we can start cha changing the narrative to treat this like a health condition um, will, I think, make all of, of this um, sort of part of my story and I hope she's watching and proud. I totally get that. The work I'm doing is, you know, in honor you of my it. daughter, just this very similar thing, just trying to even save one life, right? And save I think you yeah. And I think you have touched the lives 
of maybe even even more than you know, even giving voice to those of us who've lost children to overdose. There were there's a good group of uh, parents, yeah. you know, from all over the country that I've met and connected with because of this. And you've given us a voice. And initially you gave me a voice where I didn't even know. I mean, I have a platform because I'm a journalist, but I didn't even know really that I had one. I think because of all the stigma and shame surrounding this kind of death. And we all feel that, but, but you've given us that connection and that voice. And, and it's just, it's, it's been healing. That's a healing thing for all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. And hopefully this work heals your heart too, in a way, after the losses you experienced. Yeah, it does. It does. It, uh, and it's sort of now become my family's mission. My teenagers are a part of this and yeah. You know, you could should hear my 16 year old give the brain talk. I should just send him out to some of the. You should. The I really should. <laughs> send him to high. Send him to schools all over the country. They'll listen to another 16 year old. I know. Oh. I know. It's really. Um, it is part of the healing process. I mean, we're all in recovery in, in sort of this space from one thing or another, and losing someone you love to addiction and all the things that still surround addiction is hard. And if we can connect to one another and if we can find mission and purpose in this, that is, um, I think, a beautiful thing that can come out of all of this heartache. Exactly. Not drowning in our grief, but finding that purpose in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. We're going to put all the resources, as I said, in the notes on this podcast. And I, I know because of COVID, I haven't seen it in a while, but hopefully eventually we'll be back, be back together again in a room and maybe DC one day. Again. Yeah, that would be great. We'll, we'll keep working towards that. And I just want to say that the work that you do um, and sort of taking all of your grief and loss and the loss of your daughter and helping those around you and educating um, the public and other families, it really is an inspiration. And I thank you for all of your work. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. For resources for families and how to get help, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider giving us a positive review. Thank you.